First I came to Louisville, some pleasure there to find. A damsel there from Lexington was pleasing to my mind. Her rosy cheeks, her ruby lips, like arrows pierced my breast. And the name she bore was Flora, the lily of the Welcome to the third podcast in the Carrie Grover Project series. You're listening to Joan Baez singing Lily of the West in the 1970s, a song from Carrie Grover's collection of family songs. But she turned unto another man, which sore distressed my mind. She robbed me of my liberty, deprived me of my rest. Then go my lovely Flora, the lily of the I am Julie Mainstone Savas, and I have pieced together the historical narrative of Carrie Grover and her family, and have collected over 200 songs that were sung and passed down in Nova Scotia throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, during an era steeped in the oral tradition of song singing and storytelling. Carrie Grover's ancestors were immigrants who held dear the songs of their homeland. Many of the songs you'll hear today were published in Carrie Grover's book, A Heritage of Songs, or found in the pages of her unpublished manuscript, or on recordings made available to the Library of Congress. Most are available for download on the website devoted to the musical and historical preservation of Carrie Grover's work, www.carriegroverproject.com. This podcast picks up where the second one left off, with Margaret and Joseph Long, who moved to Sunken Lake several years after they had married and left their homes on the Windsor-Chester Road. Together with their three young children, they arrived in 1832 and made their home in a log dwelling on the lake's north shore, where they produced a total of 11 children. Their seventh child would one day be Carrie Grover's mother. She was Eliza Long, born in November of 1840. During the daylight hours, Eliza's father, Joseph Long, labored in his fields, but his trade was that of a cooper. According to Eliza and the other sleeping members of his household, he would set to work at the kitchen table long before sunrise, pounding away, making barrels, boxes, and churns that he sold at the Windsor Market. While he sawed and hammered, he sang her father's gray mare, and rollicking drinking songs like The Merry Man. His wife, Margaret Hutchinson, spun and wove flax and wool, and over the years developed her skill and knowledge as a healer, leaning on ancient Micmac remedies she learned as a young girl, and those she learned from a doctor who occasionally stayed at the Longs while recovering from his latest drinking binge. This doctor brewed his own medicines from roots, sparks, and herbs, and taught Margaret to do the same. She, in turn, trained her daughter Eliza in these methods. It was said that there weren't many houses around where they hadn't been in times of trouble, either in sickness, childbirth, or in helping to tend the dying. A handful of stories of Eliza's childhood were passed down and remembered. 
There was a day when she was about ten years old and was riding in a wagon with her father. There were very few houses or farms along the way, and they traveled quite some distance when Joseph asked his daughter if she knew a certain song that his mother, Lucy Hutchinson, used to sing. She replied that she did know it and proceeded to sing it for him, but hadn't gotten very far before he begged her to stop. As her voice sounded exactly like his mother's, and he couldn't bear to hear it, he missed his mother so. They raised their own wheat, barley, rye, oats, and buckwheat, and it was Eliza's job to take it to the grist mill, where she patiently waited while the slow process of grinding grain was complete. It was then evenly poured into saddlebags strapped across the horse's back. As she was making her way home again, she saw a bear shuffling along further up the path. She waited for it to amble into the woods, but when it didn't seem inclined to do so, Eliza made a wide detour to avoid a direct encounter. She eventually looped back onto the trail, and now the bear was behind her. She picked up her pace and scurried home, luckily without incident. Sometime during Eliza's childhood, the widow Charlotte Spinney arrived in the community with her flock of children. Her husband, Benaya, whom she married in 1812, had recently died from gangrene as a result of an accident while building a barn. It wasn't the first time Charlotte had been left destitute. She told her children the story of her own father, Jack Davis, born in Wales in the late 1700s, and of his encounter with the press gang. Her children, in turn, told their children. Here is the story as Carrie recalled it, read by Kate Marin as the voice of Carrie Grover. They must have been hard, dark days when my grandmother Spinney was little, for here's a story which my father used to tell. The early days of the 1800s were hard ones for the people of Nova Scotia. England was having trouble with Napoleon, the Emperor of France, in order to get more men for her ships, she made use of the impress gangs, usually called press gangs. They were made up of a number of strong men in company with an officer, and their duty was to go about the country and take men away by force to serve on English ships. I've heard of men plowing in the fields who were forced to leave their oxen or horses right where they stood, and they themselves were hustled aboard ships. Often, if there was a young man that a rich man wanted out of his way for any reason, he, the rich man, would pay the press gangs well to seize the young fellow. Then the English had another rather underhanded method of obtaining fighting men. Officers would go about the country, visiting public houses or alehouses, anywhere where they'd be likely to see able-bodied men. The officers would spot a likely-looking fellow, sneak up behind him, and dropped the king's shilling into his mug of ale. The shilling bore a picture of King George III on it. When the man drained off his drink and found the shilling, he knew he might just as well go peaceably, for go he must. You see, by having the money in his possession, that was proof that he was in the king's service. It was during these hard times, 1804, Oh five or oh six, I don't rightly know the exact date that my great-grandfather, John Davis, was drinking in a tavern. An officer attempted to slip the king's shilling into his mug of ale without being seen. Great-grandfather did see him, however, and whirling about, he struck the officer's arm with such force that at least one bone was broken. 
course, he had to take to his heels, for his life wouldn't have been worth much if they could have caught him. He hid out with an old Indian named Maffel until winter came. Then the Indian helped him to escape across the frozen St. John's River into the U.S. He settled in Vermont, where he married and raised another family. His motherless children were left to fend for themselves. There is one song in the collection attributed to Jack Davis. It's Robin Hood and the Peddler, sung by Stephen Winnick, folklorist and editor at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Was of a peddler, a peddler trim, a peddler trim he seemed to be. He strapped his pack all on his back, and he went linking o'er the lee. He met two men, two troublesome men, two troublesome men they seemed to be. And one of them was bold Robin Hood, and the other little John so free. What have you there, cried bold Robin Hood, what have you there, pray tell to me. I have six robes of the gay green silk, and silken bowstrings two or three. If you have six robes of the gay green silk, and silken bowstrings two or three, then by my faith, cried bold Robin Hood, one half of them belong to me. The peddler he took off his pack, he hung it low down by his knee. Oh, he who beats me three feet from that, the pack and all it shall go free. Bold Robin Hood drew his nut-brown sword, the peddler he drew out his brand, they fought until they both did sweat. Oh, peddler, peddler, stay your hand. Oh, fight him, master, cried little John. Oh, fight him, master, and do not flee. Now by my faith, cried the peddler trim, tis not either he or thee. What is your name, cried bold Robin Hood? What is your name, pray tell to me. No, not one word, cried the peddler trim, till both your names you have told me. The one of us is bold Robin Hood, the other little John so free. Oh, now I have it at my good will, whether I'll tell my name to thee. I am Gamble Gold of the gay green wood, far, far beyond the raging sea. I killed a man on my father's land, and was forced to leave my own country. If you're Gamble Gold of the gay green wood, far, far beyond the raging sea, then you and I are sisters' sons, what nearer cousins can we be? They sheath their swords with friendly words, and they like brothers did agree, then to a nail house in the town, where they crack bottles merrily. At Sunken Lake, Charlotte Spinney and her children settled into the rock house, so-called because of the enormous rock fireplace that took up an entire wall. Though illiterate until adulthood, she taught her children their letters through the song The Lumberman's Alphabet. A is for axe, B is for boy, C is for chopping, D is for danger, and so on. Three generations later, Charlotte would be remembered for the day she walked several miles to visit a relative, and while there admired a blooming rosebush. 
A root from that bush was given to her, and she carried it home in her apron and planted it alongside her house. Years later, it was transplanted to her son's home when she went to live with him. Over the next two decades, this one rose bush survived numerous clippings and was planted beside her children's and grandchildren's homes. The Spinney family was very poor. Letters sent to Charlotte's mother in England asking for financial assistance went unanswered. Somehow the family survived, in part due to her strong, capable children. Her oldest daughter, Mary, born in 1820, earned a small wage spinning wool for Eliza's mother. Her sons, Leonard and Griffin, worked aboard sailing ships transporting goods up and down the eastern seaboard, while her youngest son, George, born in 1837, and who would eventually become Carrie's father, put his efforts into setting traps and snares in the surrounding woods and fields to capture rabbit, beaver, mink, muskrat, otter, fox, and the occasional lynx. He said he came from a long line of fine singers. As a boy, he learned to sing When Joan's Ale Was New, A Gentleman Born, The Jolly Soldier, Sweet Caroline, and Aaron's Lovely Home. The Blind Beggar of Bednall Green he learned from his mother. It is sung here by Maria Gillard with Kit Fallon on fiddle. It was early one morning young Betsy arose. She went to her father to ask for some clothes. She went to Oh, then says the squire, it's you I not have. 
Among the pages of family stories, there is one short line stating that George Spinney had befriended Eliza during a childhood squabble. It makes sense that the two would have bumped into one another in that small community. Perhaps it occurred on the day Eliza was gathering beech nuts in her father's grove when she was about 11 years old. She had filled her mitten with nuts when two older boys came through the woods and asked if they could have some of her beech nuts. She handed her bulging mitten to one of them, and instead of taking just a few, he took all of them and handed Eliza her empty mitten. Perhaps George had been in those woods that day, too, and had intervened on her behalf. At age 18, George followed his brothers, Leonard and Griffin, to the wharves of Halifax, a city teeming with activity and commerce. The Reciprocity Agreement had removed U.S. tariffs on raw materials and agricultural produce, increasing trade between the provinces and the northeastern states. George began his sailing career in 1854, transporting potatoes, apples, whale oil, and wooden products. Carrie recalled her father's accounts of his days at sea. He told harrowing stories of being blown off course when his ship dragged anchor, nearly dashing them against a rocky shore and the ships buckling against a stormy sea that could have broken apart the wooden vessel, and sitting for weeks caught in a doldrum, sipping rations of tea until the wind lifted the sails and pushed them homeward. He sang the songs he learned from other sailors on board, like James and Florence, the Bay of Biscay, and other sea shanties and songs of shipwrecks. He returned home from his sea voyages brimming with new melodies, Here is a recording of Carrie singing The Servant Man and speaking with Alan Lomax about a time her father returned from sea and was walking home through the woods. Tis of a lady both fair and handsome 
A merchant's daughter, as I've been told, on the banks of Shannon, a lofty mansion. Her father had great stores of gold. Her hair was black as a raven's feather. Her form and feature describe who can. But youth and folly belong to nature. She fell in love with her servant man. When her father found out her intention, he like a lion loud did roar, saying, From Ireland I'll have you banished, or with my broadsword I'll spill your gore. To build a dungeon was his intention, three flights of stairs it was underground. The food he gave her was bread and water, they only cheer for her to be found. Three times a day he so cruelly beat her, till to her father she thus began. I own, dear father, I have transgressed thee, but I'll live and die for my servant man. When Edmund found out her habitation, it was well secured by an iron door. He swore in spite of all a nation, he'd release his true love or be no more. So at his leisure he toiled with pleasure to find releasement for his Marianne. And when she saw him in the dungeon, she cries, my faithful servant man. When the old man came with his bread and water, he to her father thus began. I freed your daughter, I own I love her. The one at fault is your servant man. I only know a part of the last verse. He fell a-fainting on the dungeon floor, saying true lovers should ne'er be parted since lovers broke through an iron door. Well, that had a happy ending then, didn't it? Yes. Father learned that somewhere when he was away because that's the song that he was singing as he was coming through the woods and his brother and sister were hid trying to learn it. Why did they want to learn that song? Well, if anyone come home with a new song, they wanted to learn a new one so they could have it to sing. And if anyone had a new song, they didn't want to, everybody to learn it. And well, I should think it would have been impossible in your family because people could learn songs in one repetition, though. Oh, Aunt and I was the only one who could do that. I see. But, but your brother and sister, they'd have to hear it several times. Yes, Bertha used to learn words more quickly than I did. Uh -huh. She'd have the words to a song and I'd have the tune. In big families like that, some can't sing at all is a usual thing, and some can. Well, you mean your father was just walking through the woods and your his brother and sister, or your brother and sister, which one? His, his brother and sister, forever. They hid out on purpose to learn that Yes, song. they were trying to. And we came to that place uh, three times a day. He so cruelly beat her. He sang, he gave to her three horrid pludges, and it tickled them so that... He knew they were hidden, and that's what he sung. <laughs> and the sound is a comical. It made them laugh and, it, and discovered uh, them. That's a real story.
George's voyages took him to Virginia, or Old Virginia, as he referred to it, around 1860, just prior to the outbreak of the Civil War. He was struck by the strange and unfamiliar sights and sounds he encountered there. On the docks he watched his slaves toss large bales of cotton while they sang work songs. Carrie wrote that she heard her sister Bertha say that she and her brother Joe used to pick up potatoes for father, following along behind him as he dug them. When they got tired and began to lag behind, he would begin to sing one of the old work songs, and they would hurry to catch up so they could hear what he was singing. The one they liked best was Sally's house. I went out to Sally's house, Sally wasn't home. I sat over in the corner and I played on the old jawbone. George had watched the slaves gather in front of their cabins at the end of the day. A banjo played, slaves sang, and one slave started patting Juba an African form of body percussion. He tried to describe this dance to his children, saying, The old man's trousers were faced with leather, both fore and aft, and he kept time to the music by slapping the front part of his right leg with his left hand and the back part of the same leg with his right hand. He kept his feet moving, too, except for the times when he would leap into the air, whirling around two or three times, then begin dancing again as soon as his feet struck the floor keeping perfect time to the music of the banjos and never missing a beat. While he was away from home, his family persevered, and young Eliza Long grew up. When she was about 14 or 15 years old, she had a dream. She dreamt she was peering through a window and saw a man coming up the road with a stick on his shoulder and his clothes tied up in a red handkerchief on the stick. The next day, she went to visit Mary Spinney, who frequently came to spin wool for Eliza's mother. She looked out the window and saw the man in her dream, red handkerchief and all. It was George, returning home from sea. George would one day tell his children that he'd known on that day that Eliza would be his wife. Five years later, in 1859, Eliza gave birth to a son, Anson, out of wedlock. There is no mention of his biological father in all of Carrie's notes and letters, but when I visited the descendants of the Long family in Sunken Lake in 2014, a member of the Schofield family claimed him as one of theirs. Anson spent his early childhood years in his grandparents, Margaret and Joseph Long's home, where he absorbed the music of his grandparents, his aunts, and uncles. He heard his grandmother, Margaret Hutchinson Long, remember the songs her own mother, Sally Pitts, once sang, and his grandfather, Joseph Long, sing the Irish songs from his father and the Scottish ones his mother knew. His uncles returned from the lumber camps of the Northeast with new songs on their lips, and soon everyone could sing those, too. None of it was lost on Anson. His earnest attention and musical agility preserved a generation of music that he eventually passed on to his little sister Carrie when she was born 20 years later. He was the essential bridge between generations. Without him, many songs would have been lost, as both of his maternal grandparents passed away before Carrie was born. 
Margaret Hutchinson died when Anson was six, but her husband Joseph endured for more than a decade longer. He was a stern and very religious man. He attended Baptist revival meetings and adopted a strict moral code, arriving at the belief that the old songs he sang were in fact sinful. Everyone knew songs from memory, but it's evident that Joseph owned a collection of broadsheets or printed ballads which he called ballots. One day he dropped his stack of ballads into the fire, believing it sinful to sing such songs. George Spinney must have been aghast at his behavior, for he said, I wouldn't have done that for $20, a large sum of money in those days. Many of the songs Joseph had sung they never heard again as no one else seemed to know them, not even Anson. Years later, when Carrie was assembling songs to publish in her songbook, she still felt the sting from the loss of those her grandfather had known, as she couldn't find anyone who knew or sang them. Mary Spinney, George's older sister, came off into the long home to spin wool for his grandmother. Anson said she sang all day at the spinning wheel, but never the same one twice, claiming she knew more songs than anyone he ever knew. Mary Spinney's songs are among some of the best remembered, including Arthur McBride, made famous by Paul Brady.
Paul says, Arthur, I wouldn't be proud of your clothes For you've only the land of them, as I suppose And you dare not change them one night For you know if you do, you'll be flogged in the morning And although that we are single and free We take great delight in our own company And we have no desire strange faces to see Although the jury offers are charming And we have no desire to take your advance All hazards and dangers we far to run chance have no scruples for to send us to France where we would get shot without warning Oh Narcissus Sergeant I'll have no such chat and I neither will take it from spalpine or brat for if you insult me with one other word I'll cut off your heads in the morning and then Arthur and I, we soon drew our hearts And we scarce gave them time for to turn all the wrong blades And a trusty shillelagh came over their heads And bade them take it at his fair warning And their old rusty rapiers and hung by their side We flung as far as we could in the tide end now take them out, devils, cried Arthur McBride, and temper their rage in the morning. And the little wee drummer, we flattened his pal, and we made a football of his rowdy dodo. Threw it in the tide, far to rock and to roll, and bad at the tedious returning. And no money paid them off in cracks And we paid no respect to their two bloody backs For we lathered them there like a pair of wet sacks And left them for dead in the morning And so to conclude and to finish disputes We obligingly asked that they wanted recruits for we were the lads that would give them hard clothes And bid them look sharp in the morning George and Eliza set off by sleigh to be married in Wolfville in the winter of 1863. Afterwards, George built them a two-story home near the southern shore of Sunken Lake, 
With lumber, he'd planked at his own sawmill on the Little River. All eight of George and Eliza's children were born and raised in this house. Louis, Jim, Sarah, Margaret, Bertha, William, Joseph, and Carrie. Anson was there, too, raised as George's own son. Carrie was born in July of 1879. She recalled scenes from early childhood of being rocked by an older sister, Margaret or Sarah, who sang to her the farmyard song. Want to drive my father's cows With a moo-moo here and a moo-moo there And a moo and a moo and a moo then go My pretty little maid, won't you come along with me To the merry green field of pleasure Want to drive my father's sheep with a ba-ba here and a ba-ba there and a ba and a ba and a ba they go my pretty little maid won't you come along with me to the merry green fields of pleasure or to drive my father's ducks with a quack quack here and a quack quack there and a quack and a quack and a quack they go my pretty little maid won't you come along with me to the merry green fields of pleasure in her writings carrie described the interior of their home it was a small building with a large kitchen-living room combined, and opening from that was her parents' sleeping room. Upstairs, there was a room where the girls slept, and an open chamber for the boys. Herbs hung from nails driven into rafters upstairs, as the house wasn't plastered. Later, her father built an addition onto the house, into which they moved the stove in summer, and used as a sort of summer kitchen. In winter, her father used it for a workshop. In the kitchen beside the stove, there was her grandmother's rocking chair, some kitchen chairs which her father had made, and a deep leaf table. There was a couch covered with scarlet broadcloth from soldiers' coats. On the wall above the couch was a sizable looking glass, a mirror, and their one picture. The dish cupboard had shelves for the dishes above, and below that were enclosed shelves for food storage. Suspended from the beams over the stove were some narrow pieces of wood on which strips of pumpkin and strings of apple were hung to dry. On the floors were hook rugs. Learning to make them was a part of a girl's education. Beside the house, a rosebush bloomed, a clipping from the original one Charlotte had carried home in her apron years before. Often her mother and father sang together in the long, quiet evenings after the day's work was done. Her mother with her never-ending knitting work and her father with his pipe between his hands. Her father sang James and Florence, the Bay of Biscay, the loss of the New Columbia, and the Golden Vanity. He knew a very old one called The Two Sisters. Some of father's Irish songs he must have learned from Grandfather Long, Billy O'Rourke, Corporal Casey, Paddy O'Neill, Aaron Gobra, One Side of Galway Town, and Janie on the moor. Mother sang The House Carpenter, The Jolly Plowboy, The Banks of the Sweet Dundee, and The Bold Fisherman. Carrie wrote that often when neighbors came in to spend a quiet evening, much of the time would be spent singing, and people sang a great deal over their work in those days too. Carrie states that these types of songs, what we know today as folk songs and ballads, were the only kind of music they ever heard. What Shall We Do With a Drunken Sailor was the first song Carrie tried to put words to at around age three, 
and she would sing it to her father in the morning while he made his breakfast of herring and potatoes over the fire. Carrie remembered a time when she was home alone with her mother, too young yet to attend school with her brothers and sisters. She recalled the sound of the wind whistling around the corners of the house and the whirring of her mother's spinning wheel. It sent a cold shiver tingling up and down her spine as her mother sang The Croppy Boy. There were special songs she sang as she did her washing, pieced patchwork, did the sewing for her large family, or went about any of her numerous household tasks. Again, someone was always singing in the spinny household. The next podcast will continue to bring more music and memories from Carrie Grover. Here is Maria Gillard's version of the stormy scenes of winter. Johnny was but mine Some people
I'll steer my course to Flanders. I'll leave. 